This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Yeah, the other thing I, I liked that you um, had the, that awareness and bringing that idea of incorporating men. And I think the other lesson there for me was when you were talking about interviewing them is that so often we have these themes or these concepts that we think are important only to women. And it's because due in part to the fact that we only talk to women about them. So that, that ends up being the misconception, this notion that, well, this is a woman's topic because um, we're just usually talking to them. And because most of us are women, it's women talking to women. And so there's this idea that, well, men don't care about that. But you're exactly right, especially our young faculty, a generational thing. They want to be dads. They want to be involved in the lives of their kids. It's it's just as important to them, and we don't know it until we talk to them. So I love that you in, b- brought them in and heard their voices. If a man were to say, you know, I'm going to go, I'm gonna, I can't stay for this meeting, I'm going to go pick my kid up at soccer, the judgment there would be he's not really serious about his career. And so he would take a hit for, um, for doing what, he, even if he felt strongly that that was important, he would take a hit professionally. And in terms of his seriousness about his career, and I, I hope that the needle has moved on that. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we have Dr. Ann Brown, the Vice Dean for Faculty at Duke University School of Medicine and a professor of medicine. And the, she has the honor of being awarded the Carol J. Bland Phronesis Award just recently by the AAMC Group on Faculty Affairs at our Professional Development Conference. And let's make sure we understand phronesis, P-H-R-O, it is the acting for the welfare of others without thought for self, seeking and enabling heroically the development and success of others. Well, welcome, Dr. Brown, and thank you for being a hero and stepping up for our faculty, and what a great honor to have that award. Well, thank you, Kim. I'm just delighted to be here. I'm really honored to be asked to talk to you and to be part of this really great new idea, Faculty Factory. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks. We just love um, hearing each other's stories, and and I thought after years and years of going to our professional development conference, we just never have time to talk with each other, and we're running into each other in restrooms and in hallways and changing workshops and running around. And it just seems like there's never time to get to know people. And so I I know people are really enjoying these stories. And so we are thrilled to have you, a vice dean for faculty. So exactly how do you go from endocrinology to being a vice dean? (laughs) Well, you know, I've thought about these questions that you kindly sent me ahead of time to reflect on. And I really appreciate the opportunity to to reflect um, on um, the trajectory of my career, and I recommend it for other people. I think it's an interesting idea, but I'll tell you that I've always been interested in women's health, and I started out in OBGYN, did my first year in a rotating internship in OBGYN, and realized that I really liked to have some time to sit and think, and wasn't really great running to an emergency. So I switched to internal medicine, but I knew I really wanted to stay engaged with women's health, and so I that is what led me to endocrinology, which is very much about um, about women's health. Many aspects of it um, are about women's health. And so I, uh, my clinical practice over the years evolved around women's health and menopause to eventually uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, and I really love taking care of PCOS patients. And at the same time that I started thinking about women's health and doing some programs on education about women's health more globally, not just kind of the GYN um, aspects of it, but um, but but thinking about rheumatology and women's health or cardiology and women's health, I started to think about the women physicians, the women providers, and kind of thinking about what their careers were like um, and what kind of issues they had. Because my, you know, early on, I think I really recognized, like a lot of people do, that, that there was a discrepancy in the number of women, particularly in leadership positions, and so I was curious about that. And I'll tell you what I did way back in 
faculty about what they needed. And those initial ones were um, focus groups with women uh, at different stages of their career. And uh, and it turns out that, that what I was hearing was a lot of, I don't really understand the promotion process. I'm not really sure how I'm, what, you know, even kind of what track I'm on. And so it seemed like there was an opportunity to provide um, some kind of institutional mentorship around this. Mm. Uh, and that's really how it started, was then building programs to support women to kind of understand the, the career trajectory, how to build a career in academic medicine. And, you know, I can tell you how it, it went from there, but that is essentially the, the start of it, my interest in women's health and women's careers. So this is great, and I love how you phrase that brilliant mistake, and that kind of made me laugh when you said that because most of us, when we think of mistakes, we think, you know, certainly nothing brilliant about it, mostly boneheaded, especially when I do make them all the time. But I, I, can you help us understand how did you, you know, when you started to learn about focus groups, under what uh, leadership role or or title or where were you in in your position that gave you or the authority or to say, I'm going to start holding focus groups? What were you at that time that um, people would answer your emails or invitations to, to participate right. in a focus group? So how did how did that happen? is that it, there's, there's room for innovation. You can, uh, and my experience was if I had a good idea, I could pursue it and no one was really saying no. Um, I could go ahead and try to just, you know, piece it together however best I could and that's what I kind of want to be by mistake. And what I mean by mistake is, you know, not terribly planned out but kind of blundering ahead until you come up with something. Um, and so I was an assistant professor. You're kidding. You were an assistant professor. This is a really important point there. I love these kind of stories where people empower themselves or and, not or, but and are also in an environment, in a culture that promotes and nurtures empowered faculty. So I love that. You were an assistant professor. I thought you were going to say, well, I was an assistant chair or vice dean for divisionals, director, blah, blah, blah. You were an assistant professor and you were in a culture that supported and endorsed innovation and just decided to do something on your own. Well, I guess they just didn't say no. That's what I would say. Um, and uh, and what I love is that about academic medicine is that you can have an idea and um, and you know your ideas are important and, and doing what's important to you has a place at, at work. Um, yeah. And so that's that's always been. Um, a really positive thing for me, and um, and I just loved uh, kind of uh, the the discovery of that. And I think I've always been kind of interested in the local environment. And I'll tell you, I didn't always feel like um, I, that this was going to be a career trajectory that worked, because typically, you know, you need to develop um, a, a, a a scholarly um, portfolio of work, and you need to um, have um, Publications, peer-reviewed publications. You need to have a national reputation. Uh, you know, there's a, this this the particular pathway um, forward was was not at that time in 1997, which was you know my third year on the faculty. I think um, that uh, was was not uh, to, to to think too much about the the, the local environment and kind of right. people around you. It was really you got to you got to make your mark in the world. Right. Um, and, and that is still the case. We still want people to do that. We still want people to think big and do big things. But I've always been much more concerned with um, how to help people who might um, succeed in this environment. I don't know why I'm interested in that, but I think that it, it kind of, I kind of understood it to be a less than welcoming environment for women and underrepresented minorities. It was a, it's an environment that's built on, sort of with a, with a, um, kind of a, a, a social model in mind where there's one person who can have unlimited um, availability to work and then a household engineer at home doing all of the uh, household labor and the, the emotional load of being part of a community and yes. birthdays <laughs> and that the garbage needs to go out. But that, that academics has always required this sort of 
unlimited, um, I'm always available to, to work kind of mindset. And that has worked for men the way our society has been set up. And, you, you know, you could just see that it wasn't going to, that, that people who had other responsibilities and desires and wishes and interests and right. priorities were disadvantaged in this environment. And I think I have always been interested in that. I wanted to work on um, helping people who were, you know, less traditionally welcomed into this environment to do better, to succeed, to understand it, and to be the best that they could be, and to bring themselves to work to contribute to this place. And I always felt like I was a little bit of an outlier, but that was just what was important to me. Well, and that's exactly why uh, our community gave you the Phrenesis Award. You just define. You just define. <laughs> You just defined what it, what that's about, um, acting for the welfare of others. Um, so I, I, I love that. I just still want to take a, ba- a step back. I'm still curious about this focus group. So here is an assistant professor, three years at the institution, starts, takes it upon herself to learn about focus groups and convene young women, learn their stories, see opportunity and need. And then what do you do with these data? Where did you go with them? To whom did you show them? How did things start happening? I shared them with the, the dean at the time, I think. And, and, and uh, so I'll tell you what happened. So the, the women, I, I, I interviewed senior women and junior women. And I'll tell you what the senior women said. They said, oh, I got here by, mis- you know, by hook or by crook. You know, there was no plan. I just did it. I couldn't really tell you how I did it. And I'm like, well, that's not really helpful for the <laughs> That's right. It's not just a women's issue. It's a, it, it was at that point back in 2003, I started thinking about it as a generational uh, issue. And so, so then in 2004, um, Sandy Williams was the dean, and uh, it was just right after the women's initiative as well, where um, I had played a more visible role at that point, still without any particular title, but a more visible role in women's health uh, and um, and women's professional development. And so um, at the end of that, he asked me to be an assistant dean for women in medicine and science. And so that was the first um, foray into the dean's office. And I have to say that that I think I almost had a nervous breakdown because I really liked working on my own, kind of behind the scenes and not necessarily having a you know, a formal role, and so it was a real transition for me to think about um, having a voice at the table, and it took me a while to get used to that. Um, But we immediately started doing professional development things that were geared toward, that paid attention to gender issues, but also were inclusive of men, Mm. Um, and and so that led to, you know, I think an associate vice dean for faculty uh, development somewhere around 2007 mm. under, uh, I can't remember, I think he was, oh, I can't really tell, remember the, the date, sorry, but that's kind of how it, how it evolved. 
it was a building up of um, on an interest that I had. Um, yeah. And um, uh, and, uh, and and communicating about it uh, right. over over time in various forums. Well, I just want to amplify what you said because the lesson there it, again is identifying your passion and feeling empowered and providing a culture or embedding people in cultures or creating a culture that allows our faculty to have the freedom to explore things. So you've described to me, again, something that we can or hopefully are creating for our own faculty is uh, I just picture you as an assistant professor taking this on and then skip skipping tra-la-la down and giving the information to the dean and then you're talking about hobnobbing with presidents and it to me is just that is the beauty as you said about academic medicine that there's so much we have such a long leash we could do whatever we want um and and ideally though that's again is the the space to do that i know i worry about our faculty today having the time and the and the freedom to explore those topics that, I mean, look at the beautiful things you've done now for Duke, all because your curiosity was nurtured, you felt supported, and you uh, felt empowered without having a title or clearly protected time or supplemental salary to do this. So that that's, I think, what is a, a, an important lesson to be learned there. I think you're right. I, I benefited from having some more flexibility than I think junior faculty have today. Um, and, I, you know, I look back on it and I feel good about it. When I added, you know, interesting story, you're making me think back on those initial focus groups. When I, you know, remember that I talked to some senior faculty too, and I said, one of the questions was about, you know, what, how do you approach professional development? And I <laughs> now people have an idea of what that means, right? I think it's most of our colleagues in GFA, of course they would know what it means to you and they would know what we mean. Back then they looked at me like, well, I am developed, I'm regulated. <laughs> yes. By, you know, what, do you, what, what do you mean professional development? Yeah, yeah. And now we have much more of a lexicon for what that means. It's how to do, how to navigate this institution, this, this business, and do your job well. The, the other thing I, I like that you... Um, have the, that awareness and bringing that idea of incorporating men. And I think the other lesson there for me was when you were talking about interviewing them is that so often we have these themes or these concepts that we think are important only to women. And it's because or p- due in part to the fact that we only talk to women about them. So that's, that ends up being the, the misconception, this notion that, well, this is a woman's topic. Because um, we're just usually talking to them. And because most of us are women, it's women talking to women. And so there's this idea that, well, men don't care about that. But you're exactly right, especially our young faculty, a generational thing. They want to be dads. They want to be involved in the lives of their kids. It's it's just as important to them. And we don't know it until we talk to them. So I love that you in, brought them in and heard their voices. Yeah, it, it really taught me something, too, because I didn't quite understand the dynamics for men in medicine, particularly early on, but, you know, particularly at that time, uh, if a man were to say, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I can't stay for this meeting, I'm going to go pick my kid up at soccer, uh, the judgment there would be, he's not really serious about his career, and so he would take a hit for um, for doing what, he, even if he felt strongly that that was important, um, he would take a hit professionally, you know, feel like he might take a hit professionally and in terms of his seriousness about his career and I, I hope that the needle has moved on that at least in many arenas within our schools and health systems. Yeah I, I, I remember talking to at my former job um, on one of our um, I can't remember what group it was but it was a it was a bunch of older men and I'm older too now but it was about 15 years ago and and they were probably in their their late 50s late 60s and we were talking about developing junior faculty and the, their conversation was around um just what you said you know I got here when I was younger at six in the morning and I would go to my mentor's office and we worked and, and I'd stay late at night and I was in the lab late and, and we just worked and that's how you have to get things done. You just, you're here and, and they were sharing similar stories to that. 
And I was, you know, I, I applauded their perseverance and their, their hard work. And I said, I can't believe that you guys did all that and raised these great kids of yours and did the grocery shopping and the cooking and the cleaning and the homework and the house repairs. And, and I just went on and on and on with this list being obnoxious. And then said, oh, well, we didn't do that. And I said, well, that's the point. I said, of course you didn't do that. Somebody else did that. But we have faculty now who, um, they don't have somebody else to do that. We have young women and young men and, and there's no third party there. Uh, there's the young women need wives too. So you, you're describing situations where you had partners at home who were taking care of that other stuff for, especially for the young women who's, they're both husband and wife many times. Uh, they're both in academic medicine. And so there is no one home to do that other stuff. That's right. And the so. The flip side of that too is that, sorry, but you're inspiring me here. The flip side of that is that women um, who do have those other obligations, if, if their partner, if, if their male partner in this, this conversation um, is not willing or able or feels too at risk to actually take on household responsibilities, then they cannot take in women. Those women cannot take advantage of the face time. That's right. That those people that those older faculty were talking about right. as benefiting them. That is, you can't. It, it became clear to me early on that if that was the model for success, to be able to hang out in the hallways um, and run until you bumped into you know a senior faculty member who would impart some wisdom to you, mm. if that was the model that that was required for faculty and for advancement. It would never, it would disadvantage people who, who could not do that. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I was meeting, I, I can't remember if I already shared this story with um, our family and friends listening, our, our GFA family listening, but I, I had a junior faculty member a couple, three weeks ago who was in my office, and she and her husband are both uh, physicians at at Hopkins and her six, their six year old, uh, little girl was walking around the house rubbing her head. And I think I'm saying her or him to, for anonymity, not that I'm going to mention any names, but the little girl was, uh, little child was rubbing her head and, and mom was like, Oh, geez, you know, do, do your eyes hurt, sweetie? No. Does your head hurt, honey? No. Did you, is something wrong with your ear? No. Well, what what is it, baby? And she said, I, "I I'm stressed," and and she and she said, "Kim, when I looked at my little daughter and I said, oh my gosh, our my husband and I are both forever, we're up till three in the morning, and we do this." And I saw in her that why is my our six year old child stressed? What does she have to be stressed about? And it's because she's looking at mom and dad who are constantly doing that, and it just breaks your heart to think. You're exactly right. To be successful, what do you have to do? And then what are you sacrificing? You know, we need to think of creatively about different models yeah. um, of success. Yeah. I think the millennials will, will help with that, that their ability to work in groups, for instance, is phenomenal um, as, a, you know, general, as a generalization. And they, will, they hopefully will support each other and teach us about teamwork. Oh, I can't wait. Well, I'm, I'm taking us too off, off track here, but people do want to hear about um, our faculty affairs and faculty development offices. Can you give us a bird's eye view of what the organizational chart, if you will, of your space looks like? Sure. It's grown a lot in the past couple of years. Um, <clears throat> but um, So we started off as, as uh, working on faculty development, and we still work on that. And, um, and the, the focus has become... Uh, leadership development. So we have leadership, leadership programs for different, um, for different kind of um, stages and focuses for, for, for faculty, and that's been enormously fun. Um, so that's one area. Uh, we also have a, a research mentoring program. So we're a research-intensive institution, and um, there's, there's uh, because of some of the things we were talking about before about less flexibility for junior faculty now mm-hmm. than in the past, you really have to hit the ground running if you're a researcher. And so we're, we've built some programs to help people um, write really terrific grants oh. uh, right out of the bat, wow. uh, right out of the, um, the gate. Um, and so we have, uh, I have an assistant dean for research mentoring um, who is um, leading those, those programs. And they help people, with, as I mentioned, with the process of writing excellent grants and telling great stories. Um, I also have uh, in my office uh, uh, 
Dr. Kevin Thomas, who is Assistant Dean for Underrepresented um, uh, Minority Faculty Mentoring. Mm-hmm. He runs a leadership program and he calls Advance Up, um, which is a phenomenal experience. It's in its second year now, I think, um, and he works on, uh, on, on sort of, um, professional development for you know, within that uh, leadership development program, but also one-on-one mentoring mm-hmm. for underrepresented faculty to um, keep them here, to help them um, uh, navigate a pathway forward. Right. Uh, I also manage the APT office, the Appointment Promotion and Tenure office, and uh, so thinking about the kinds of things we want people to be rewarded for um, with promotion uh, and tenure. Right. And, uh, and uh, then we have a really exciting internal executive coaching program uh, that no I'll tell you more about. And then we, I spend most of my time on professional issues professionalism issues, right. um, work, uh, working with um, promoting a positive work environment, working with people within uh, our vice chairs for faculty, building connections within the departments, uh, between the departments and the School of Medicine around faculty uh, professionalism and behavior, you know, disruptive behavior, yes. managing that uh, well. So those are, those are the things that are currently in my purview. Wow. So before we get to something that you want to share that's important and interesting, how many staff do you have? You've mentioned like three or four dean levels. Um, do you know offhand how many staff, what kind of percent effort? Don't tell me it's just one. <laughs> no, um, we, well, for, I'll just have to say, I need to brag on my staff. They are the best staff in the universe. They are really, really fabulous. And uh, they you know, they develop each other and grow within this job. So it's been a, a pleasure working with this, this staff. But currently, I have one, two, three, four, five, uh, five staff members in, in my office oh, uh, that wow. support these, uh, these various programs. So I will say that there's a separate APT office that is composed of four individuals. Sure. And that's four additional individuals who keep the trains running with respect to promotion and tenure. But that's, that's our team. Wow. That's, uh, Duke has clearly embraced uh, this work, and it's, it's evident by putting uh, their money where the mouth is. You know, I think that I have to thank the Nancy Andrews, who was our dean from 2007 to 2017, for really supporting this and wanting, and very much seeing that the faculty, the, the importance of developing faculty, and that's carried on by our current dean, uh, dean uh, Mary Klotman. It's, it's just a no-brainer for them to invest in faculty. Tell us something important that you are doing that you'd love to share with us. Well, I think that um, I would like to, I, I think that one you know, one thing that's really moving to me is working with our, our mid-career women leaders in a program we call ALICE. Um, and it is, I, think, I know many programs, many, many schools have um, programs for mid-career women. Um, and uh, and I, this has just been a profoundly moving experience for me to, to work with a group of about 14 women over the course of about nine months um, where we go through various uh, exercises to learn about, you know, various things like emotional intelligence, conflict management, negotiation skills, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Myers-Briggs, uh, and um, a number of things. And we have them work together, you know, riffing from ELAM a little bit, this Executive Leadership and Academic Medicine right. program a little bit, to get them to work together on various, on various issues, not projects, but um, to work together on of understanding their own the authentic leadership style and motivation like why why do they want what do they want now right and it's just fascinating to see people who have have achieved what people achieve by mid-career and begin to think about what's really important to them in the next part of their career and um, and it's wonderful to, to see them um, engage with each other as if they're meeting other colleagues for the first time. And it, it I mean, what I mean by that is it, I just don't think that uh, women faculty at the mid-career or senior level actually run into each other all that mm. much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're in different departments, we're a big school, um, and so they don't often have the chance to talk and understand how much they have in common and to support each other through it. So it's really 
and I am really all about empowering women to become, uh, to take leadership positions, um, to help kind of close that gap at the, at the top. I think we do need some um, energy put into that, and, um, and I am really happy to do that locally. Yes. Um, so that, that's one really cool thing. And I will say that the context for that is also pretty cool, and that is that uh, Duke currently has a lot of women leaders. Uh, you know, I mentioned that two of our, our deans in, in sequence uh, since 2007 have been women, uh, really powerful women, Dean Nancy Andrews and Dean Mary Klotman. And we have a, a woman provost who came from the School of Medicine, that's Sally Kornbluth. And she's, um, and when she looks at over her 10 deans, there are 10 deans on campus, do you know how many of those deans on Duke's campus are women? Seven out of 10 deans on our campus are women. No, no. It is just phenomenal. Of course, we have a wonderful president who's a wonderful man. Um, and uh, and uh, so this is not anything against hmm. men at all, but it's just cool to see our chief legal officer for the university is a woman. Hmm. Um, our chief IT officer is a woman. So Was I, that on purpose? No, you know, I think um, if you talk to people who are in charge of choosing these people, um, they will say, you know, I just, I just went for the the best person, the person who's most, the best person, the person who's most qualified. Wow. Um, and um, and so uh, it's so so having the Alice program in the context of uh, so many. Uh, women in leadership positions is a real moment in time on campus. And one of the fun things that I do too, I'll just say, say is I, my office gets, uh, uh, women leaders together periodically a couple times a year. And, uh, we just get together and, um, I'll usually do a celebrity interview with, uh, one of the oh. leaders. Oh, I love it. So they can get to know each other. And I have to thank, um, Liz Travis for that idea. She does that down in Right. Right. And learn from her. Wow. Well, that I'm just amazed by this. I wonder if in all of our medical schools, how you how Duke ranks, because I have that's the first I've heard of when you said we have a lot of women leadership. And I thought, does everybody hear what she just said that that's never said by any of us. So I'm curious if you um, does Duke hold the the title for being the most female friendly for leaders institution medical schools? I wonder. Uh, that would be a big leap. I think. I think there needs to be some. Uh, you know. I think that that um, I'm not sure what it means, but I think it's an interesting observation. And I I don't think that we that means we've solved the problem because while we have many women at the at the top, you know, we still have. Um, the, the, the layers uh, beneath that mm-hmm. are not always as as, um, as mm-hmm. diverse, but I, I feel, I, I guess it's just, a, what's interesting to me is just to see how important that role modeling is. Exactly, yeah. hear about the importance of role modeling, but now I can look and I can see seven women who are in the hot seat, and they're all very different. You know, some get their nails done every week, some people wear Birkenstocks. Yeah. And uh, and they, I can see that they're successful in a variety of different ways, and uh, and I just think that's a powerful message for a lot right. of the women coming up. Exactly. Uh, it's nice, nice to see these, that there's not just one style, one kind of yeah. um, uh, approach to leadership that works. Yeah, talk about true diversity, and I, I think that would be fascinating to look at young. Uh, women faculty at Duke and other institutions and all other of our peer institutions around the country who may also have a disproportionate number of female leaders compare to uh, other institutions that maybe have the disproportionately or most of them male leaders and look at their female junior faculty and see the effect of that role modeling. In other words, you know, my hypothesis, all of our hypothesis would probably be that young women moving up the ranks in an institution and in a culture and environment where there are a lot of women in those hot seats see that and therefore they believe that and they perceive it's possible and therefore they are more likely to then assume leadership positions in other institutions versus the comparison schools where that's not a role modeling environment. I bet you that we'd see that. Yeah, you're speaking like a researcher, Kevin. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so what else do you have um, um, interesting that you'd like to share with our community? So I was going to ask you, wait a minute, now where does this come from? Because she's one person, one coach. So the business model, let's say, let's, can you describe how that works? The departments own that. So there is some kind of um, a chargeback per visit or per faculty member, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so the, the dean's office kind of um, funded the, the startup and uh, there is, just like for external executive coaching, uh, there's a charge per, per session. And, and there's, uh, there are different things that, different ways of structuring it, but it, it can be one-on-one coaching over the course of, you know, four to eight sessions. Uh, and then she's also, Sharon is also developing some group coaching models. Yeah. She's also oh. working with teams to yes. improve some team communication and team functioning, which I think is super important. Um, and so it's been incredibly well received and really is an, I actually think it's a, an important um, strategy for mentoring because it helps somebody mm. figure out how they want to navigate a, a career challenge. Mm. Um, and so it is an impartial, confidential person um, separate from a mentor, you know, that you would use in addition to a mentor. Um, but it just gives them another modality to sort through some of these things. Yes. I'll tell you that wow. the, um, some of the junior faculty, when I ask them, well, what do you talk about? What's been most helpful? They talk about time management. Mm. Her help thinking through time management has mm. been really helpful. Huge. That, I, I bet you people are just itching to to run to their leadership and say, we need this coaching, you know, the... The group on faculty affairs, I think it was at last year, maybe it's, no, it was last year's professional development conference. Somebody, a group of us met for one of those round tables in the bre- for breakfast and there's a monthly coaching learning community. And that's uh, another opportunity people who are listening. There are lots of us who are interested in, in coaching and how we can use this tool and yours is that is definitely something that is... Um, innovative and interesting and I'm just so I'm curious about the team the team coaching and as you were talking I was thinking about peer coaching models and and a lot of this comes back to these like so I like I'm all about small communities and bringing people together and and relationship building and I think that is just another example of how 
we can take this coaching model and bring it into divisions and departments and labs and clinics and office spaces where there there's some elements of just being there, as you said, like a neutral party listening to people. It's just so important is just listening and being there and helping them to solve their own problems. No, you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the most exciting um, next steps for this is to be able to deploy Sharon or there are a number of people coming up now who are getting trained and want to right. join the internal executive coaching group uh, part-time, which is a very exciting. And, and uh, to be able to deploy this skill set on behalf of a team, particularly a team that wants to function better. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's so important for um, all the things that we're concerned about in TFA um, in sort of integrity, mm. research integrity, um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, standing up against harassment uh, and being able to talk about, have difficult conversations when there are cultural differences or um, um, or uh, perceptions of bias. Right. Um, you know, I think that we need our teams to work well together, and when they don't, it's so costly. It slows things down. It it it, it uh, and it um, spent. We spend a lot of time trying to fix something. Right. Um, right. And so I, I'm pretty excited about the ability to have an internal um, resource to support the. Team. Yeah. And this is just another example of the the gift we have, the blessing of being in academic medicine, where here's another example where you had a faculty member who was transitioning out of her leadership role and said, my encore career, I want to do this. Again, self-directed, identifying a passion and being in an institution where that curiosity was nurtured and she was empowered to build something that was valuable. So clearly um, something's happening at Duke where, the, where these kinds of uh, uh, ideas are allowed to germinate and are fertilized and result in this wonderful uh, programming. Because why the heck should executive coaching be reserved for the elite? I remember when I first heard about coaching at a former job, and I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, I would like a coach. How can they get coaches? And, and my colleague was like, well, that's yeah, that's just so fan. That's for the fancy people. It's for the people who get drivers who drive them to work. But I, I love bringing this down to, geez, why we all need coaching, and how can we take some of these elements and then, and and clearly, what you just said is exactly what we all aspire to: is that you build something and then people catch fire on it. They love it, and then they want to do it. And what a greater in, uh, endorsement or validation of your work such that you can say, okay, I built this now. Here you go. Take it over. And people, um, it just spreads and goes viral, if you will. And then it, it has a life of its own because people get it. And it's sometimes a lot of our ideas just need someone to start it and and get it going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're right, and I give I give our deans who you know a lot of credit over the the, you know, the, the course of my career. You know, my my deans have been open to that, and I you know I'm grateful grateful to Sandy Williams and Nancy Andrews and Dean and Mary Klotman wow. for um, for their willingness to to, to think outside the box. That's great. So what is there anything else you wanted to share with us something um innovative or interesting or something you would you're proud of that that's happening at Duke? Yeah, I guess I have one more story. I mean, I right now I um I am very much uh consumed with uh thinking about how to respond to sexual harassment in in our ah, environment. I mean, we know yeah. from the National Academy of Sciences Engineering and medicine report that is prevalent, um, and and particularly the harassment that is sort of below the surface, the, the unkind comments, mm. the, you're, the "you're not welcome here" kind of comments that are um, that are um, convey uh, that that that, um, that, that you know, that they don't belong. Yeah. So you know, of course, that that is. Sort of what my whole career has been has been thinking about, and so um, one of the one of the things that so in this case this did come from the top down. The president of the university asked myself and one other person 
my colleague, uh, the vice provost um, on campus, to to address the sexual harassment in some way. Mm-hmm. And what, and so you know, I really thought hard about how to do this, and I really and so I decided to start with leadership. Uh, and I, I said, I need to get in front of our leaders and talk about sexual harassment. Well, what am I going to say? I can talk about the statistics, but you know, it's not something they haven't heard before. They're, they're all aware that, that harassment exists. They've been reading the news about the Me Too movement and right. other industries, and they must be thinking that it will happen, it will come, it will emerge here in our environment as a problem. So one thing I did that has caught fire, I've been you know, happy with it, the, the way that it has, um, the, the approach that I took, at least the initial approach, which was I gathered stories from some of my colleagues. It was like the night before I was going to talk to the chairs, and I thought, I do not want to give a presentation with just with numbers. Right. So I want people to really understand this issue and how, how awful it can feel to be on the receiving end of, of uh, a demeaning comment. Um, and um, about gender or race. And so I just called up a couple of my friends who had shared some stories with me. I said, would you be willing to share a story that I could, you know, I could relate, I could talk to the shares about? And they both sent me two stories. And I had had a story from the focus group, and I had my own story to share. So I went to oh my gosh. and I say with six stories. Oh, my gosh. And I put them all on a separate piece of paper. I handed them out, and I asked each of the chairs to read the story aloud. Oh, brilliant! Love it. And I, I, and and they were really appropriately uncomfortable with what they were that, that what they were reading had happened in the, yeah uh, to one of their colleagues. And I think that they had a one really wonderful man said to me, you know, he's somebody who sends me articles all the time about what's going on in in the world around the Too movement, and mm-hmm. he's deeply concerned about this, married to a wonderful feminist physician. And what he said to me afterwards is, you know, I just I just didn't really think it happened here. Here, yeah, you know? wow. So here's somebody who's woke, um, who mm-hmm. said, I, this is just really disturbing to me because I, I could always think of it happening elsewhere, but not here. Mm. So the stories, I think... Personalized it, yeah. Yes. Uh, maybe yes. because we're physicians and we listen to stories all day and are moved by them. But I, I think um, that uh, was another kind of happy mistake on my part. Yeah. And, um, well, I, even the, just the nuance of you having them read the story. I mean, is, is when you started telling your journey about how you, you got stories, I thought, okay, she typed up these stories and then she sat there at the table and read these stories. But when you said you asked them to, I thought, oh, that is it. That's what did it. Um, that was just perfect to really have someone internalize that, but it, the words are coming out of their own mouths versus listening to you. Yeah. I Fantastic. Was, I, again, I stole that idea from, some, from a colleague and it, I was a little nervous about it, but I think it worked well. And I'm saying it out loud in this podcast because I think other people should try it. Yes. Oh, for sure. That is great. I love it. Wow. Well, is there any uh, any parting words? This has been so much, and just like so many interviews, you've you've hit on so many things, and I think we could probably do a whole hour. I'd love to hear more about your executive coaching and your Alice, and but it's it's just been so wonderful. I'm I feel so inspired, and I always want to end up these conversations running back and. Look what Duke does. Look what look what they do. How can we can't do that? So I, I'm I'm confident that people listening have the same kind of enthusiasm and want to listen and take notes and run back with these great ideas. Um, do you have any parting comments or thoughts or um, words of encouragement for our our friends? Well, I you know I I think that that what seems important to me is to is to. Tackle what you can tackle. I think that I, I wouldn't want people to, to um, you know, I, I don't know, to get overwhelmed yeah. thinking about all of these things which developed over over 30 years. Yeah. So I wouldn't want my story to, to feel overwhelming to people. I think that all any of us can do is take 
one, one thing at a time. Right. And, 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 and own it and honor it and take it seriously. And I think that, that um, so I, um, you know, and I encourage people to stand up for the culture in their school, in their mm-hmm. environment, and to, and to honor that and to make that a priority. Mm-hmm. Because it's really powerful uh, what happens when we care for each other. And I want to just thank the GWIM and the TFA, uh, two organizations within AMC that I've been involved with since you know I started on the faculty, uh, for introducing me to colleagues like you, Kim, and to some of the other people that you've spoken with, mm-hmm. um, and to um, my TFA colleagues. And I'm very, very grateful to be part of this community. You're, yeah, exactly. It, it is the best. It is. It's just such a. We, we all have this same heart for service and wanting to help each other. And I'm just so grateful as well that they were all kind of walking each other on this journey. I, I, I just wanted to also say, share a little story before we end here that our, our program coordinator yesterday, uh, Miss Sydney Vargas, we were talking about culture. We were doing a session on emotionally intelligent leadership and, and we we're talking about the importance of culture. And this is so important in everything you've talked about today, Anne, and, and how Duke is such a great uh, example of leadership that endorses and empowers. And the story is about, let's see, Sydney was saying something like somebody, she said, somebody told me that culture is like making kombucha. Now, I don't know, don't know what kombucha is, but it, it looks interesting. Now, let's say interesting. But she said, there's a, it, a lot goes into it and it takes a long time and it takes very little to mess it up. And the, and the idea was that, cause we we're talking about that you can work so hard and build a great culture and then you make like the wrong hire or you're not thoughtful in bringing a new leader into the culture or even, uh, hiring anyone into the culture. But that one like bad egg, that one rotten egg can, can really ruin a culture. And it goes to your professionalism, your sexual harassment. So it's making me think of that idea that building a culture does take a long time and you, you don't, you want to be careful and, and thoughtful and purposeful in how you um, bring new people into that culture to make sure that that kombucha stays good and doesn't get ruined. Well, this has been a great conversation, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. And you've been listening to Dr. Ann Brown, the Vice Dean for Faculty at Duke University School of Medicine. And I hope you tell all your friends, tune into the Faculty Factory podcast. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.